Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 30th, 2020, the Twilight of Democracy edition. I'm David Plotz of Business Insider. I'm back in Washington, D.C. in my new apartment, my glorious new apartment. Back from restful pastoral New England into the sweatbox of Washington. I am joined back from somewhere by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. It's good to be back. Where have you? Have you? Were you away, or were you just in Connecticut, or what were you doing? Yeah, we we took a um, we left the city for the first time since um, uh, I guess the first week of March, and took a little uh, vacation in which basically the kids didn't hang out with us, but it was lovely. That sounds idyllic. I wish my kids didn't hang out with me. No, if my kids are listening, I didn't say that. And that. <laughs> brief gasp of horror you heard from Wyoming is that of Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post, Gabfest stalwart, who joins us. Emily's away. So Ruth is here. Hello, Ruth. It's great to see you. Hi, everybody. Um, how's Wyoming? Wyoming is glorious. I'm not going to rub in the um, weather to anybody on the East Coast or sweltering elsewhere, but it's beautiful and we've seen moose and we've seen bison and we've seen antelope and um friends have seen bear but i am very happy not to have seen bears because they scare you've seen me republicans probably like you've seen republicans spray. unlike we've seen a very large trump 2020 flag but jackson it, where we are is a little liberal enclave in a very red oh my city. god sorry we're gonna get to the show in a second in vermont on the road where my parents live, one of their neighbors has put up an enormous flagpole with a Confederate flag on it. In Vermont, it's just, what is going on? Anyway, on today's GabFest, how is Joe Biden doing? We're just under 100 days out from the election. Is he running the right kind of campaign? Does his running mate, who he's going to choose next week, is that going to matter? Who should it be? Then big tech has a day on Capitol Hill. The House Antitrust Subcommittee is targeting Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook. What should be done to these big tech companies and how did their appearance before Congress go? And then Ann Applebaum, the brilliant thinker about nations gone terribly wrong, has a new book about the twilight of American democracy, well, democracy globally, and the rise of authoritarianism. We will talk to her about that. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Can you guys hear my cat's mewing? Yes. I mean, I, I find it... Um, I'm sorry. Uh, ...charming, but... Um, okay. There is a man in a basement in Wilmington, Delaware. He is likely to be the next president of the United States. Joe Biden continues to count a big lead in the polls, 90, what, 94, 96 days out from the election, despite running the most invisible presidential campaign of recent years. 
the Mike Gravel campaign was more visible. <laughs> there are no yard signs that I can see. The best ads for the Biden campaign are made by a bunch of Republicans. Uh, he can announce multi-trillion dollar ideas for programs and barely make the news, not make the homepage of a major news outlet. So, Ruth, how is it going? Is this a great campaign that Biden is running? Um, it is. I think it's actually the best campaign that Biden could run, which is to say he has the perfect excuse to contain, control, and not to put too fine a point on it, limit his exposure to the public while still being out there enough. And meanwhile, his opponent, President Trump, is doing all of Biden's best work for him by apparently seeking to do his best to convince those who still might be open to thinking about possibly once again voting for President Trump, that that would be a really unwise idea. So uh, good work, Joe. John, I think there was expected to be, this may be pre-COVID, there was expected to be a kind of civil war within the Democratic Party in this election with progressives uh, who were frustrated that Bernie Sanders got knocked out and frustrated by Biden's mediocre half a loaf, small, small half loaf of wheat bread instincts. But that has not really happened. Why do you think that civil war has not really happened? Well, I think because the civil war idea was overblown a little bit, the same way it's overblown on the right, where people talk about, you know, there was going to be a great civil war when Donald Trump was the nominee. And basically all you got was some frustrated antics by Ted Cruz at um, at Trump's convention where he didn't precisely endorse him, even though he had a speaking slot. But now Ted Cruz has become a Trump stalwart. Um, but it's because there's sometimes a little over coverage of that. The aggressively anti-response from the president to the protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder um, have uh, become a turnout mechanism for a lot of uh, for a lot of progressives and also particularly for the black vote, which people used to worry about. Although with Joe Biden, um, that worry always was a little weird because he did so well among black voters in the primary. Um, so I think I think it was overblown. Events have interfered. We know that negative partisanship, which is to say voting against the other person, drives a lot of voting. Uh, and certainly Democrats are uh, have negative views about about the president. And finally, Joe Biden's done a lot to try to quell those things. He put out a 110 page unity document with Bernie Sanders. He worked with Bernie Sanders and coddled him in a way that was has been effective. Coddles maybe I don't mean that to be pejorative. And then finally, he has done with bigness and and his Build Back Better campaign, which, by the way, some people may remember um, <laughs> where they heard that term first. But um He's trying to do it in a big response to the current situation. If it's not super liberal, he is he is amping up his what he thinks is the response to the current moment, which conveys boldness in a way that maybe papers over a little bit the fact that he's not for Medicare for all. Well, Ruth, let's talk about some of this policy stuff. So it it is so odd to me that he's announced what by historical standards are absolutely enormous progressive programs on uh, sort of building infrastructure and building back and buying American. And also, he effectively announced a Green New Deal. I don't think the Green New Deal people think of it as a Green New Deal, but it, it was an enormous investment in clean energy and in, and in uh, some of the ways to, to mitigate climate. And yet, uh, these are not getting much attention for reasons we can 
that are obvious, but that we could talk about. Do you see them as being compelling? Are they ideas that are grabbing for people, for voters? Or are they just things you have to do to put out there just to make noise? Every candidate, I mean, John and I and you remember the good old days when um, in 1992 and afterwards were to be a serious candidate, you didn't just need to put out ideas, you needed to have actually like a whole book of them. Nobody is going to read a book about infrastructure in the middle of a pandemic or focus on elements of the Green New Deal and where it does and doesn't comply with what the proponents of the Green New Deal do. But I think it's important as um, for a couple different reasons. One is um, what John was saying and what I think that the Biden campaign has been really smart to do, which is to uh, uh, mollify might be a better word than coddle, John, <laughs> yeah. if I could be your editor yet again. Um, I, I had a great time being John Dickerson's editor for an excellent op-ed he wrote for the Washington Post <laughs> to plug both of us and John's book to go with it. Um, he's done, it, um, the Biden campaign has done a good job of giving the left of the party enough that um, it can be so it's it's anti-Biden instincts can be suppressed, though there are, to use a Trump word about the pandemic, clearly embers that are, and we're going to see additional flare-ups as this go along, but they haven't really caught fire among the left of the party. But at the same time, none of these policy proposals from the Biden campaign have caught fire in the country, no, I don't think that um, even most GabFest listeners could tell you very much about the first five things that a President Biden would not, do this, upon taking this Gab office. This GabFest host could not do it. <laughs> I didn't want to name names there. Uh, but that's okay, as I keep saying. Um, we are all focused on whether we've washed our hands properly or wears our mask when we go out. And what the death count is, unfortunately, and whether our families are going to be safe and consumed with fury, as I am, about the inadequate and continuing inadequate response of the administration. So if I'm not really clear on how he's going to build on the Affordable Care Act, um, which I'm semi-clear on, that's okay. Yeah, uh, the the policy um, brush fire is hard to catch, as we've discussed on here, but it's hard to it's hard to happen given the, the news cycle. But I do um, I think the idea of build back better, which I uh, said he should adopt months ago, which is funny because I thought it was just my idea. Um, but it comes out of the etymology comes out of uh, disasters. And so after the Indian Ocean tsunami, the idea was, the disaster created all of these problems, but also an opportunity to use all our skills to build something that, that was better. And so implicit in Build Back Better is that the incumbent has done the destroying. There, it's also hopeful. It has a future-oriented view to it, all of which you kind of traditionally want in a campaign. So slogans are, you know— not that useful, except in politics where they can be useful. And so to the even if people aren't getting down into the details of his infrastructure plan uh, or his plan for, for minimizing or reducing racial disparities, the idea in his slogan does seem to me to be the right one and represents an adaptation in the moment from what was more of a caretaker message earlier, which was kind of a return to normalcy. This is you know, a second stage of the Biden message, which recognizes that lots of inequities and disparities have been highlighted by COVID-19 
and then by this moment of racial um, uh, implicit uh, racism conversation that we're having. John, I, I want to go back to the point that Ruth was making, which is that the the Biden strategy effectively is uh, the the adage that when your opponent is is digging his own grave, don't get in the way. Uh, that is not the adage. That's the my gloss on whatever the actual adage is. But is there is there a point? I, I Build Back Better. I know only because I was doing reading to prepare for this segment. Build Back Better is you weren't listening not to me. Been, has not been. I mean, you probably said it on the show months ago, but like most things you said on the months on the show months ago, I've forgotten it. But it is. But Build Back Better was not kind of uh, acid etched on my brain before having to read about it. I don't think the American public has a grand sense of what it is that Joe Biden is doing. And is it okay? Do you think that this, as a campaign strategy, can persist till election day? Given that what the polls are doing, and given how much Trump is the issue, and should he should he not bother to emerge from his chrysalis and attempt to really broadly campaign and make a show and let people know who he is, or should he try to do it? Short answer: You can't campaign in that way because of COVID. Second, you can't campaign in that way and break through the news cycle except by lighting your hair on fire, and that's not him, and that's not his campaign, and it might not work anyway, because it's really hard to break into this news cycle. And, as we've all said, running the kind of campaign he's running right now allows his primary turnout weapon to keep helping turnout, which is to say leaving the president to continue to have an insufficient response to the two biggest crises of the day, and the third, because I would argue the economic devastation is the result of poor choices on testing and masks with respect to COVID and any other uh, of the problems with the response on COVID, which is a health thing, but it's an economic thing as well. So strategically, he's doing what, what his skill set and what the moment seem to require. And, and if I could just amplify on that, it, he's not in, he may be functionally invisible, but he's not actually silent. There is enough coming from the Biden campaign to get him somewhere in the news cycle every day if suppressed. And there will be attention forcing events coming forward. Not, uh, under normal circumstances, we would all be packing our bags eagerly for conventions. We're not doing, we're not eagerly. We're not doing that. Say- <laughs> I'm actually, I'm like maybe the only person on earth who enjoys political conventions, not going to lie, but um, I'll just sit here and silently in my Jackson room and be sorrowful about that. So we're not going to get a lot of bump or buzz or anything from virtual conventions on either side, but there will be attention forcing events in the form of debates of some sort. And those are the moments of maybe even more peril than opportunity for Biden. He, as the election gets closer, people will focus more. He will have an opportunity. I mean, I could write for you the 10, 20, 30 things uh, that uh, President Biden could do by executive order or revocation or other action on his own in his first days or weeks in office that would... I, I return us to normalcy. And I think Build Back Better is fine, but I really think the more compelling message is restore order, restore normalcy, restore decency. And there are a lot of different ways in which candidate Biden, as people start paying attention to him, can convey the real um, specifics of what he would do 
as president to get us there. Because it's not just tone. It's not just not tweeting. It's actual real policies and reversals of policies. Well, Ruth, there will be one of those attention getting moments next week, according to Biden's own calendar. He has said he's going to announce his running mate in the first week of August. Kamala Harris, I believe, is seen as the most likely choice, the senator from California. She's the child of immigrants, Jamaican Indian immigrants. She's a prosecutor. She's good on her feet. Uh, She's run successfully for statewide office in California several times. She's a boring choice. Uh, She ran a poor, poor to mediocre presidential campaign. Um, What's your... What do you th- first of all, do you think it's locked and loaded for Harris? And second of all, does this choice uh, is this choice as consequential as it feels to me? Because Biden will has all but said he will not run for a second term. So this person, if Biden wins, is going to be the pre- presumptive front runner for the 2024 uh, Democratic nomination already. Uh, it's more important than normal for precisely the reason that you said Uh, It is not locked and loaded, I don't think, for Kamala Harris. We've seen this fascinating and I would argue interestingly gendered uh, conversation about whether she is too ambitious, would be running for president herself from day one, duh. Um, That's been a very um, unusually direct campaign, uh, quoting Senator Chris Dodd, who thought she was not sufficiently remorseful about the um, attack, such as it was. I want to just, Chris Dodd should just shut up. That was an absurd thing for him to say. Anyway, go ahead. Well, not just absurd, uh, offensive and sexist. You know, uh, in the scrum of campaigns, it it turns out that candidates who are running for the same office or the same nomination end up attacking each other. And um, not to be too much on my high horse here, Apparently, when they're Democ- when they're uh, male candidates and they say things like voodoo economics, hello, George H.W. Bush, or they say other things as Democratic candidates um, and attacking them. And uh, there's uh, all sorts of Biden quotes about Barack Obama and his lack of experience. Um, that doesn't dissuade anybody from picking them as running mates because politics ain't beanbag. But apparently when women do it, uh, it becomes more offensive to certain people of the male persuasion, none of whom are on this call. There's so much of those stories, too, is just like just the the, machi- the machinations of awful people spinning things for all these bank shot reasons, too, which are which adds a level of awfulness to all the things you have already said. Also, can I just say that part of the reason I wrote the damn book was because of these silly things like too ambitious like to to talk about these kinds of terms in the binary way they get talked about in the presidential campaign and in this vice presidential selection process is so irritating um, because, of course, you have to be ambitious. You and, and in campaigns, we now elect people who lack remorse in the way they behave. It's not that they have these qualities. It's when they have too much of them. And what does it mean to be too ambitious and especially for a candidate, by the way, who's running for president on the strength of his of the job he did as vice president, which apparently, which no doubt had some ambition involved in it. Anyway, it just so. And who has been ambitious to become president since 1987, at least was the first 
evident flowering of it, but I think it's existed before that. That's exactly that's exactly right. So uh, this isn't to negate anything that was said earlier. It just but it just highlights this awful absolutist binary way we talk about these things. And the reason it's awful is because it shuts down any actual conversation about what you might need in the job, why this person may or may not have the actual attributes for the job. Um, and that's why we're in the fix we're in. So, David, you said something about Kamala Harris that I wanted to raise, which is that she was a boring choice. And I think that is actually just a phenomenally interesting word to use about um, the, I think she would be the fourth woman on a presidential ticket, if I'm counting correctly. She would be the first woman of color on a presidential ticket. And um, that, I think it's fantastic fantastically wonderful that that could count as boring. So that's point number one. Point number two is you raised her past as a prosecutor as if that was a plus, which would be true under ordinary circumstances. And I'm really curious about whether that becomes a net plus or minus today in the world in which the left part and maybe a big part of the Democratic Party is worried about the role of prosecutors in systemic racism. And yet the president is uh, desperately trying to summon up suburban mommy's fear. I speak as a suburban mommy of law and order. And um, so is being a prosecutor a net plus? Well, I, I when I meant prosecutor, that, that's a good point. I was actually more thinking of the interrogatory power that she has ah. as a as a member of Congress, that she's a good questioner. She's good on her feet. She's a good talker. She would be probably presumably a good debater. I wasn't, it wasn't the experiential piece, which I guess was what was implied by it. It was more, she's somebody who in the, uh, the ebb and flow of the campaign is likely to be good at talking and, and putting maybe pence on the defensive. But you no, I think that's a really good question. And certainly in her presidential campaign, there were so many, Uh, So many of the questions about her were, is she sufficiently progressive? Has she been too close to police unions? Has she prosecuted the wrong kinds of people? And that was one of the things that hurt that campaign. But, you know, Joe Biden has decided to try to keep a careful balance between defund the police, which he does not support, and nevertheless addressing systemic racism. He cannot bring in a vice president who cannot echo that balance for him. Because if he does, you have one of two problems. One, the vice president comes and overshadows the candidate by f- a full-throated embracing of defund the police or more uh, adventuresome rhetoric on the question of systemic racism and therefore overshadows the, president, uh, the, the presidential candidate and causes a big problem. Or you have a person who has stronger views on those issues and who stays mum and therefore creates a story by not holding their previous views in this time, in this moment where people are looking for clarity on the issue of systemic racism. So it seems to me that on these questions, he needs a candidate who has some spent some time trying to work through that tension in their own life and career, which is basically what Kamala Harris has tried to do. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can sign up to become a member today. As we've asked you in previous weeks and months, 
please become a member if that's something that you are able to do economically right now. And if it's something that's important to you, if it, supporting the journalism that Slate does is important, membership is so valuable in allowing Slate to do some of the important work that our colleagues at Slate are doing and supporting us and doing the work that we're doing. Again, go to slate.com slash plus and your Slate Plus bonus segment today will possibly be the most controversial Slate Plus segment we've ever done, which is, should I have moved my cats with me from the house that they have always lived in to my new apartment? And uh, it's, you know, it could, it just, it could break the internet, this segment. So slate.com slash plus if you want to hear the segment that broke the internet. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Big pharma, big oil, big tobacco, big tech. If you put big in front of your name, you had better watch out if they come after big pods. If we get included in big podcasts, John, that would be amazing. Uh, But then we'd have to worry. One of the most anticipated congressional hearings in years the CEOs of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, who include two of the richest people in the world, testified on Wednesday before the House Antitrust Subcommittee. Uh, being what it is, it was mostly members of Congress talking and occasionally asking questions. The Democrats and Republicans, as we'll get into, approach the issue from different directions. But it's clear that both Democrats and Republicans are disconsolate with 
some of the things that the big technology companies are doing. So Ruth, start us off, contextualize us. What was the purpose of this gathering, this unprecedented gathering of tech CEOs? Why are both Democrats and Republicans wanting to put pressure on them? So I want to actually pull back the lens even further to contextualize. It wasn't so long ago, I think, as we say on the internet, I'm old enough to remember that. Uh, the tech companies were the darlings of Washington um, for obvious reasons that they had some political campaign contributions to give, and they were hot and sexy and interesting and growing companies. So it wasn't so long ago that both Democrats and Republicans, but particularly Democrats, loved, loved, loved Silicon Valley and its environs and all the innovation that it brought. And so this moment when you had these uh, for tech leaders like the heads of the tobacco companies on the hot seat being <laughs> accused of being the emperors of the internet. Um, they weren't lined up like in the good old days when we could have in-person hearings. Um, but nonetheless, it's a remarkable tale of transformation. Um, it's a dual tale of transformation because just because both sides were out to attack the tech companies didn't mean that Democrats and Republicans agreed on the line of attack. The Republican line of attack was, why are you lefties silencing us, censoring us, discriminating against us? And let me say that I thought this line of attack was um, bizarrely conspiratorial and not particularly well supported. The Democratic line of attack wasn't ideological in that sense at all, or content-based. It was you guys who we once thought were so cool and so wonderful have turned out to bring us, the country, a world of hurt along with your innovations. And you've just become too scary, too dangerous, too big. And so the essence of the hearing was about what was run by the antitrust subcommittee was about um, whether these companies, each one of them in their own separate and potentially sinister ways, are misusing their incredible market power in order to squelch rivals and grow big in a way that is super dangerous to the country. It, just to, to piggyback on Ruth's point about the conservative complaint about um, balance on social media, we should note that the president and his team regularly talk about how powerful his voice on social media is and how he's reframed and recreated, or not recreated, he's created a whole new way of communicating with the country through this medium that they say is is unfair to, to um, conservatives. So it's probably, it may be, in fact, be unfair to conservatives. It's not unfair to the president and his, and his party, it doesn't seem, based on the power that he has in the national conversation based on social media. The second thing is, the minute the president and his allies were supporting a nutty video by um, doctors promoting unproven cures for COVID, it was the number two story on Facebook in like a nanosecond. Again, more proof that there is no problem getting uh, the message promoted by the president and his allies in front of eyeballs on social media, um, though that was the claim from the, um, uh, from the right. It was striking to me. I don't spend a lot of time listening to members of Congress, and especially not a lot of time listening to Republicans, mem members of Congress, because I don't watch Fox and I don't tune into C-SPAN regularly. So yesterday was a chance for me to see a little bit of some of the Republican House members in action. And it was striking to me how 
dumb they sound. <laughs> they just sound like petulant, dumb kids. And it was there, you know, these were the, the two who I spent some time watching were young white dudes from, I don't even know where I think one was Matt Getz. It was so off the mark. And so you have, you have these most powerful people in American business in front of you and you're wasting their time on this really trivial stuff that isn't completely off the mark when there are these huge questions around, you know, that whether American small business has been squelched by this, whether whether the choice is between an American conglomerate or a Chinese conglomerate, whether these businesses are themselves utilities or are they not utilities? Are they do they function as public utilities? Like really, really profound questions which could shape the structure of the American economy in the generation. And they're asking just just really trivial questions. But let's, you know, I want to talk- interrupt you for one second, David. It's yeah. not just trivial. It's um, bizarrely conspiratorial. And I can't remember the name of the congressman. I think he was from Florida, who was complaining that his campaign messages, um, campaign emails yeah. to the this was to the chairman of Google, yeah. were not reaching his parents and that this was proof that his messages were being blocked. Whereas any of us who've had problems with things going to spam and understand things about aggressive natures of email filters would probably intuitively understand that it's not a an ideologically based conspiracy. It's the reality of trying to navigate ourselves in the tech world. But I took him to be um, sincere, in his, and maybe this is naive of me, but that his outrage at the tech company's supposed assault on conservatives was sincere in his belief that they were doing that when it was just simply, you know, spam filters are spam filters and the tech companies are trying to protect, you know, protect us from that. I had air quotes for people who are listening. <laughs> Can I, I mean, just, David, you said that the questions were dumb. There was a lot of playing dumb on the part of the witnesses as well. There were all these instances in which they were presented with instances where their companies use their market power to point. smash yeah. or or um, cast yep. aside smaller competitors. And, and, and several of them said, well, I'm not familiar with that case, which is the most which is which is which should have inflamed and infuriated the questioners because you're about to come to testify from before congress you know exactly what the wall street journal reported amazon about about these practices you need to have an answer for it you can't just say well i'm unfamiliar with that but we've in part because politicians have conditioned us and everybody's gotten okay with it to saying oh i didn't see that the president just tweeted this or i didn't see that that thing happened and nobody should be able to get away with that. And yet they all sort of did that. That's that's an excellent point, John. So, and by the way, the, I was just reliably informed that I'm speaking ill of uh, Congressman Greg Stubbe of Florida, the, whose pa- poor parents can't get his emails anymore. They probably marked them as spam. The <laughs> they probably were like, Sorry, oh, Greg. Greg's campaign is sending us more emails. We've already maxed out our donation. Please, no more from you. All right, so I want to get to some of the substantive questions because, Ruth, the biggest, I think, general area is this idea that these platforms, and particularly Google, Amazon, and Apple, uh, less, this is less true of Facebook, are places where people are doing commerce but they have to do commerce. People who are not Google, Apple, and Amazon are doing commerce, but they have to compete against Google, Apple, 
and Amazon, which are giving themselves preferential treatment. So Amazon is creating its own line of products to sell AA batteries that are the Amazon Basics version of batteries that other people are trying to sell on the platform. Or Amazon has just set up its its whole ecosystem so that it can learn a ton about consumer behavior, harvest that information, learn a ton of about consumer behavior as people buy things from other retailers and then use that information to in turn advantage themselves and, and harm these other retailers that, that because of the size of Amazon, they, these retailers have to compete on Amazon and give that information away. And, and I want to, so to, to continue this long point I'm making antitrust policy for the past you 40 years or so has been built around harm to consumers is built around the idea that that if we can find a harm to consumer then then the government should be concerned with antitrust but if we can find no harm to consumer in the form of a higher price then we shouldn't worry about it and amazon's defense against all antitrust and i think google and apple's implicitly against all antitrust is that if you look at the world but there's what's the harm to consumers we here at amazon we've lowered prices for everyone we've made shopping more convenient so why is there an antitrust investigation when we've made things so much better for consumers so ruth is the harm to consumers model of antitrust in itself flawed or or is it not flawed but actually there are huge harms to consumers in the sense that consumers are also workers and workers are being harmed by this businesses are being driven out of uh, you know, small businesses are being destroyed all across the country. And so the overall economy and the overall consumer is doing badly, even if they are not doing badly when they buy that particular uh, set of batteries. So I think this is my um, moment for full disclosure, full disclosure. I work for the Washington Post, which is owned by one Jeff Bezos, who also is the founder of Amazon. Um, full disclosure number two, uh, my husband was the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, which helps protect consumers from all sorts of harm uh, under President Obama and was involved in some investigations of these very same companies. So now that everybody knows all my dark, not secrets and not that dark, I think that the consumer-based model of antitrust laws and looking at harm to consumers can survive this new onslaught of really dominant um, social media and other technological platforms. Because the essential argument is that if, say, an Amazon or a Google manages to run the other businesses um, out of business, then eventually, if they are monopolists and they control the marketplace, then they will eventually exert their monopoly power and raise prices. So you you look at um, monopoly power, you look at consumer harm. I thought one of the um, smartest moments of the hearing yesterday was uh, when uh, Jim Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin, a, a Republican who's retiring, um, made the point that he thought that the antitrust laws were up to the task of policing these companies, but questioned whether the enforcement was up to the task of policing the companies and whether our models of going after these companies were robust enough. And when I spoke to an antitrust enforcer, a former antitrust enforcer about this, uh, he also suggested that court decisions that had potentially limited the reach of antitrust laws played a role here as well. And it's been a long time since I took antitrust law, so I had no idea what he was talking about. But as a general matter, 
I, I think there's two things going on here at once. One is the challenge of the antitrust laws as it applies to these incredibly powerful and dominant companies in their own fields. But we've dealt with that in the United States before, whether it's with railroads or oil companies or other monopolists or would-be monopolists or potential monopolists through history. The layer of this that I think is animating some of the animus towards the companies is the information they have and the power that they have over our lives and the invasions or potential invasions of our privacy, which are not antitrust law issues. They're questions of whether we have the right laws to protect consumer privacy. And they don't go to the the serious questions about whether these companies are competing unfairly by charging would-be people on the app store too much, by using information to take business away from competitors selling dish rags or whatever else by by um, charging too much for their advertising space. But it's the spillover effects that we understand that these companies, unlike previous would-be monopolists in America, are affecting our democracy, are no information about us, could use it in ways, have allowed themselves um, knowingly or unknowingly to be misused in our elections. And so they are a different breed of would-be monopolists than we've dealt with before. Is that isn't that is that a separate question, though, yes. Ruth, from... Right, so... Yes, it uh, is, but was, it infects it. Sure, sure, sure. I also wonder, I mean, this was Microsoft's defense in 2001, and is that if you're in a tech company, you're always worried about the competitor stealing your lunch quickly. Now, the defense against that or the the rebuttal to that is, well, sure, but like that doesn't mean you should have this excessively dominant power. But I wonder if that puts, um, I mean, so for example, uh, they will, they're able to point to say TikTok, which is, and say, look, they, the TikTok came out of nowhere and now it's, it has this dominant position. Um, and so in a competitive environment like that, we're always under threat from market forces, so you don't need to to meddle. Um, but I also wonder whether the pace of change means dealing with these questions in and with existing antitrust laws makes more sense. Because, as David was saying earlier, do you really want Congress legislating on these things, given the level of expertise there and pay, and and speed of action? I want to. I mean, John, to your point on Microsoft and and on competition generally, I worked at Microsoft in those days. And I, and I, I think that Microsoft case is, is a really interesting one because it was, at the time, it was seen as a huge defeat for the government. The government lost, effectively lost the case. But in retrospect, it was a complete victory that, it's, that Microsoft spent five years uh, enmeshed in litigation, really slowed down what it was doing. And it, that, those, in those five years, a whole new... Uh, world of competitors arose, including some of the companies that we're talking about, that took away from Microsoft's dominance. And so merely the investigation and merely the kind of friction that Im- that was imposed on Microsoft in- during that time caused that uh, Microsoft to stumble. And I, and, I, and I don't think, I mean, one of the things that I keep coming back to is that it's not that the option, the alternative to Amazon is some, uh, you know, magical other Baby, baby e-commerce company that's coming up. The alternatives to Amazon globally are companies like Alibaba and Tencent and principally are Chinese companies. And so one of the things that I think will, will help these 
the American tech companies in the long run is for them to say, yeah, okay, we're problematic. We concede we're problematic, but do you really want the, all these decisions to be made, all these the same kinds of dominance to be uh, gained by companies that are Chinese or Indian or Korean rather than companies that are at least homegrown? And and that's a that is a, I think that's a that's a pretty good defense to some of the attacks on them. We are joined by Anne Applebaum, who's been on the GabFest a few times before. Anne, of course, is a brilliant journalist and thinker, and she has a new book, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism. And it's about why and how intellectual elites, intellectual conservative elites in so many places, particularly, I think you write about Poland and Hungary, the UK, the US, maybe Spain, uh, have abandoned liberal democratic beliefs and instead supporterist and buttressed and legitimized authoritarian regimes that have sprung up in the past 20 years. So, and you begin with a party, a party that took place uh, in the house that you are at right now in rural Poland. Tell us about the party and about what the party tells us about where we were 20 years ago and what's happened now. So first of all, to be clear, it's not a book about parties. I'm not that great a hostess. You wrote a cookbook, you know, there wasn't Anne. Any catering at that party. You wrote a cookbook. <laughs> you are a good hostess. <laughs> no, but you know the what last I mean. time I got really hammered was at a birthday party for you. <laughs> That's right. And and anybody who shoots blanks into the <laughs> air during a party is is attending a pretty good party. But now that we've all three interrupted you, Anne, <laughs> right? That that wasn't me shooting the blanks at the party. Um, that was a nutty guest. So the party was on the night of the millennium in 1999. And what struck me about it years later was I I looked back on it. I thought about who had been there. And at the time, it was kind of nobody famous or fancy. It was kind of junior journalists and very low-ranking people in politics. My husband was then a junior minister in the Polish Foreign Office. Some of our friends came from England. Some came from, a couple of people came from the U.S. You know, because it was the millennium, people wanted to do something exotic. And so people were willing to come to Poland in January, which normally they're not. But it had this kind of goodwill about it. You know, our neighbors came, the sort of local farmers came. And it was a very, it was a very eclectic cross range of people and a lot of people from Warsaw. What struck me years later was the memory that it had felt at that time, like everyone in the party was on the same side. Communism had fallen 10 years earlier, and we were all kind of vaguely in agreement about direction things were going, and we thought Poland was going to very soon join the EU, which it did, and join NATO, that, you know, we'd had this great triumph of liberal democracy. And of course, one of the other striking things was that it didn't feel like there were going to be that many differences anymore between, you know, the Polish guests and the American guests and the British guests. You know, we were all going to, we were all kind of on the same team going in the same direction. That is no longer the case. And it is very true that there are people at the party who would now cross the street to avoid other people who'd been at the party. Poland has become so profoundly polarized and the deep differences between the political camps are so profound. The current Polish ruling party, kind of nationalist nativist party, was elected to office in 2015. And once it took power, proceeded to try and change the democratic rules. So it tried to pack the courts. It took over state television. It began putting private media under pressure. It politicized the the, the the civil service and so on. So it began to do these classic illiberal 
actions that liberal parties, when they take over in democracies, sometimes do in order to sort of make sure the playing field is no longer even and to make sure that they won't lose ever again. Um, the, the, the rhetoric was very ugly. They used this very ugly way of speaking about themselves as the true Poles and their opponents as kind of foreigners or aliens or Jews. And I, I was one of the people who at, at one point was attacked by the sort of regime media and regime press, inc again, including people who I used to know. I was blamed for bad press that the government was given, that I was secretly organizing, I don't know, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Reuters and the Washington Post and the BBC against Poland. And this was a actually was an item on Polish state television. And I thought about that, and I thought this demands some kind of explanation. So why did this happen? Um, and then I started to think about other places where I've spent time over the last 20 years, including the U.S. and the U.K., where I worked for a long time at The Spectator, which has kind of sort of historically been conservative. And I thought about my friends there who had also split in different directions. And I thought a little bit about the Republican Party in the U.S., which has also had this experience, this same kind of deep divide. Um, and all of those thoughts led to this book, which is about the breakup of what used to be the coalition of the center-right. And it will be an annoying book for political scientists because it doesn't have a single thesis. It just kind of tells some stories and shows how some of these things echo across different countries and across time. So, so Anne, you conclude the book by talking about the potential paths that the future can take and that the future and a post-COVID future could take and whether it will make us um, more willing to engage in global cooperation or whether it will reinforce some of these really dangerous and upsetting tendencies that you identify. And I'm wondering, since you finished writing and ended up in that kind of equipoise of uncertainty, whether you've become more optimistic or more pessimistic? The problem with making judgments about the pandemic is that the nature of it changes um, as we go along. Um, and it's certainly true that at the beginning, it looked like the pandemic was going to be good for authoritarians because when people are frightened, I mean, this is true all the way back through history, they're very willing to exchange freedom for security. And you saw these, you know, the slamming down of the borders and the, you know, you know, orders for people to stay home and that sometimes things, you know, elements like that stay once they've been um, used once. As it's gone on, though, it's become clear that this pandemic requires something different of the state, that it that in order to defeat it, it actually needs some high level of public trust. And it turns out that the countries that are good at doing that are not countries that are run by populist authoritarian political parties. Um, they are countries like Germany, you know, or South Korea, Taiwan, Switzerland, Slovakia. My, my conclusion is that one of the things the pandemic may do is it may show that the, the style of politics that I describe a lot in the book, which is this depend this use of conspiracy theory, the sort of deliberate sowing of distrust in institutions, the use of the use of us versus them politics and the courting of this deep polarization, that may turn out to be a bad way to run a country during a pandemic. And if you look at the US, if you look at Brazil, if you look at Mexico, if you look at Russia, 
um, you can see, you know, why this is the case. Is that is that and because in order to come up in that authoritarian structure, your the incentive is to find enemies and not present arguments. But in the course of a of a pandemic, you have to convince more than those who are like minded. So you have to present an actual argument that can persuade rather than a list of enemies to target. Yes, exactly. I mean, so so the kind of politics that I'm describing in the book that has split the right in so many places is this politics of us versus them. You know, we're the true patriots. We're the real Americans as opposed to those multicultural, you know, lib dem, whatever you call them, you know, Antifa people who are trying to wreck our country. Or we're the true Poles as opposed to the sort of Jews and foreigners and, you know, Europeanized urban Poles whom we don't like. And in order to convince people that you need to use all kinds of conspiracy theory, accusation, division. Whereas, in fact, during a pandemic, what you need is to get people to listen to science. You need them to trust the government. And, you know, if you've been running a political system that says, uh, you know, in which half the country, you know, has been demonized um, and no longer trusts the government, then why do you why do you think they'll listen to you? I mean, here, you know, here in Poland, there's enormous doubt. Now, actually, we now have a we've done OK in the pandemic so far, partly because of yeah, we just got it late. I think Poland was very lucky. Um, and the numbers are going up now. And partly it's a reflection of lack of trust in the government. People just don't believe them anymore because they've, you know, um, and, and the, you know, it turns out that what you need is people to, you know, to listen to science and not listen to, um, you know, their nutty uncle on Facebook who sends them another meme, you know, describing how foreigners are undermining us and, you know, taking away our you know, our nation. Do, you had a really good piece in the Atlantic earlier this year about why so many Republicans go along with what they, at least if you polled them five years ago, know to be disgusting ideas, wrongheaded ideas, a disgusting president, grotesque distortions of the America that they have claimed to believe in, that they've run on. Why are there so many collaborators with authoritarian government. So if you remember that piece, there was a there was a range of explanations. And once again, I'm going to be annoying and I'm not going to give you a single answer. But um, and they range from people who talk themselves into believing that they're doing something useful by staying inside the circle of power around the White House. You know, I can if I stay here, I can help my country. And if you remember the New York Times, that anonymous op ed from some months ago made exactly that argument. There are others who are absolutely there for economic self-interest because, you know, if you're inside the administration, then later on you can quit and get a really good lobbying job. There are some who are there because they're so mesmerized and entranced by the idea of power. There are some who are there because they have come to believe, and this is these are the most dangerous ones, and these are actually some of the, there are people like this in my book, they've come to believe that the other side the liberals, whatever you call them, the Democrats, the um, are so dangerous and so damaging to our nation, in some cases so immoral and so degenerate, that we need to stick behind the president. Most of them probably believe themselves still to be at some level, you know, good people. And so they will use a mix of these excuses. You know, the, the, the latest and next battle is going to be over Trump's, you know, evident intent to damage or somehow misshape the coming election, whether it's going to be through undermining it verbally or through trying to stop it or through refusing to accept the results. You know, we can we can see this coming. And this is going to be the new big test for that group of people. 
And I was thinking of you um, when President Trump answered a question about bounties on U.S. soldiers, Russians putting uh, bounties on U.S. soldiers by explaining that the U.S. had supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviets, um, which it seems an extraordinary thing for an American Republican president to use uh, in defense of why he didn't confront Putin about that. Um, and that got me thinking about so the, the Soviet period and communism. If, par- if the adhesion of your party was in part a shared antipathy towards communism, how much of what you describe in the book it results from a failure to offer an alternative explanation in the post-Cold War period for liberal democracies? Um, and, and is that a contributing factor at all? So I don't know that it's so much a failure to offer. I mean, what happened basically was that the the coalition that was created to fight the Cold War fell apart. And when you think back on it, that's not very surprising because who was in that coalition? You know, why were people anti-communists, including Democrats, by the way? Some were anti-communists because they were, you know, cared about, I don't know, realpolitik and Soviet nuclear weapons. All right. Some people were anti-communists because they cared about human rights and democracy. Okay. Um, or minority rights, you know. Some people were communists because they were Christians and Marxism was atheist. And what happened after communism fell was that that coalition began to fray. And actually it frayed pretty quickly and it did so in, in, in all these different countries. Some of the ones who were Christians became, you know, immediately interested in working on behalf of, you know, promoting Christianity in politics, for example. And the ones who were interested in democracy were working on behalf of, of democracy. And actually, I would, I would argue that the probably 9-11 kept the thing together longer than it would have done otherwise, partly because after 9-11, the party became once again, at least for some period of time, you know, gripped by the idea that democracy was fundamental to foreign policy. And once it gave up that idea, which it, it certainly did under Trump, then it wasn't clear like why all these people should, should, should be together anymore. Anne Applebaum is the author of Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism. And since you're in a party house, do you want to join us for cocktail chatter and tell us some remarkable thing that's struck you this past week? I will join you for cocktail chatter. All right. So let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are having a virtual cocktail with your virtual friends, John Dickerson, what will you be chattering about? Um, Well, we ended up talking about it uh, with Anne. So um, I'm going to quickly shift to the books that I got to read over the last few weeks, which include Anne's, but also both of, um, I finally got around to finishing the Underground Railroad, which David had talked about years ago before it was the thing everybody was reading, and The Nickel Boys, which um, is also by Colson Whitehead, which is also amazing. It's, I don't know whether it's the fact that I was taking a little time off or the power of the writing or the combination of the two, but they are books that, um, that consume you and walk around in your head for long after you put them down which is a, a joy to be in the power of that kind of work. I also read um, Jean Reese's Good Morning Midnight, which um, anybody who wants a quick read about disillusion in Paris, she, it's fantastic. So I recommend all of those. Um, disillusion or dissolution? Both. Okay. They, they go hand in hand, yeah. I guess. I'd say and dis- and dissipation for that matter. I think um, dissolution in Paris sounds really good right now. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Ruth, what's your chatter? Um, my chatter, uh, because I find during the pandemic that my 
capacity to read actual book length books is really limited. Um, I'm going to do the next best thing, which is an essay I read in The New Yorker um, by Sophie Hegney called An Elegy for the Landline in Literature. And she talks about how uh, this actually ties, I guess, to our previous segment about the tech companies, but how evolutions in technology are changing an essential um, element of literature. And she starts with a Nabokov um, short story um, that begins, the telephone rang, it was an unusual hour for it to ring. And I've been thinking a lot because among, in addition to failing to read books during the pandemic, I'm failing to work on the notional novel that I have. And I've been thinking a lot about how changes in technology have taken away lots of potential plot twists and plot devices, right? If you always know who it is, who's at the other end of the line, who's calling, and this is not just an elegy for the landline, it's an elegy for old fashioned technology, you always know who's calling. You can always figure out where the, if the phone call is coming from inside the house, you can find your friend and everything else. And so I thought it was just an interesting musing on um, the impact of the modern world on the books that I'm not managing to read. But, oh, but I think that is such a narrow reading of it. Yes, what is lost? <laughs> Certainly things are lost. I remember, if you remember the movie Swingers, there's one of the funniest scenes ever made on film about an answering machine messages going awry in the movie Swingers. But so much is gained with the 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 literature of texting, of the kind of abbreviated nature of phone calls, of these kind of group conversations that you can now have. It's such a rich environment. And it's the there's new language. People write I don't I mean, read because their, of texting. Their novels that are just people text. write so much so much more. Oh, but think about there's there's so many. Uh, if you did you read normal people or conversations with friends, so much of the, what's in there is based on kind of text and email conversations and how those are those are convey nuance and convey convey emotion in new ways. It it is it is that's a that's such a narrow. I'm an old fashioned take. narrow person. I miss like shake. What would Shakespeare do in the modern world? All of you know, pretty much. Most, if not all, of Shakespeare's comedies are based on misunderstandings that could be cleared up with a simple text. But he would have different – it's not there are no misunderstandings in the world. There's so much – in fact, in text, it's so easy to misunderstand people. I was going to say, my experience with texting is is that I'm constantly being misunderstood, (laughs) although that's also my misunderstanding. um, That's also my experience with normal human interaction. No, but there is something about the the written word because you can't – do a facial expression with it, you know, you lose irony, you know, and because you can't, I don't know, tip your voice up at the end or down, it can be unclear what your meaning is. And I mean, this is, you know, this is a problem, but not just for text, but for Twitter as well. You know, if you get the word wrong, then people misunderstand you. They don't get it was a joke. I mean, you're, you're right. There's all kinds of layers of misunderstanding. Although I think I'm with Ruth, because I'm not sure those are as interesting as the kinds of misunderstandings that we used to it have. Just all have. we've learned is that Ruth and <laughs> Anne are conservatives and John and I are progressives. Oh, that's, that's what the, the nature of this conversation we is. We just haven't found uh, our Shakespeare of texting yet. And what is your chatter? So I have been reading a book called MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman uh, by Ben Hubbard. Um, and it's an extraordinary book in some ways. I mean, it's it's a biography of somebody who's, I think, not even 40. So it's a, 
in, in a way, a strange idea. It's, you know, it's about his rise to power. Um, but what's interesting about the book is that the author has done quite a lot of interviews with mostly with people who are anonymous, who knew him at various stages, and who can therefore and he can therefore describe how his the atmosphere around him, the things he did and said, you know, altered as he gains power. And the book also starts with a kind of sleepy Saudi Arabia of the former regime kind of backwater, nothing much is happening, but also nobody is particularly afraid or frightened. You know, foreign journalists are kind of ignored there. And as the book goes on, and as uh, as there's this change of power in Saudi Arabia, and then as MBS, the young prince, you know, slowly takes over, you see the rise of a different kind of authoritarianism and a different kind of regime. And then you see how, you know, people around him begin to change. Um, And so, you know, it's just an interesting counterpart to everything that we've just been talking about, to the rise of authoritarianism and democracies and the instinct towards authoritarianism. And it's the same story, but told from a different point of view. My chatter takes us in a vastly different direction. I saw a little photo feature on Business Insider about the new locker room at the University of Alabama football stadium and the Bryant-Denny Stadium in Alabama. And it's a $16 million locker room, which actually didn't... I was surprised it was that little. Um, This is for the celebrated University of Alabama football team. And it's just disgusting. (laughs) It's just disgusting that they have spent all this money uh, to, you know, put fancy swivelly chairs and and, uh, LED screens everywhere um, and lots of places to plug for football players to plug in their devices and, and glamour, glamour shots of each of the players on the team. Um, it's all part of a $600 million upgrade to the stadium. Think about what the university could spend $600 million on $600 million upgrade to the stadium. And it does make you feel like it is so profoundly screwy that these players, these young men are, so valuable, economically valuable to this university and are not getting a dime. And instead the university is spending it to, to gold plate a locker room and gold plate the, the stadium and the, these men whose work, these young men whose work on the field is earning all that money. It gets them nothing. So it was, it's a particularly gross juxtaposition and also $600 million on a stadium. Come on college football stadium listeners. You too have been sending us chatter and we appreciate you sending it to us. You've tweeted them to us at, at Slate Gabfest. Please keep them coming. And today's uh, listener chatter comes from Mark Allender at, at Mark W. Allender. It points us to a ProPublica story, which is outrageous when you read it. It's about a 15-year-old girl in Michigan with ADHD who had been acting up and who'd gotten in trouble in the pre-COVID times and had, you know, had done, done some disruptive things. And in during COVID, because of, you know, it's impossible to stay current in school and distance learning is terrible. She had not turned in her homework when school went remote. And because she had not turned in her homework, that violated a term of her probation, as it were, her, ju- her juvenile probation. And she got sent. She's been in juvenile detention. She got sent to juvenile detention months ago. She's been in juvenile detention for four months for not turning in her homework. She doesn't want to be there. Her mother doesn't want to be there. But the courts are like, no, we think it's better for her to be here. It's really 
strange and outrageous story. So check it out on ProPublica. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast for John Dickerson and our always welcome and beloved guest host, Ruth Marcus. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, so I've been previewing for weeks and months the fact that I was moving and I have moved and I faced an enormous dilemma with my move. Um, so I moved from house where I had lived with, uh, my then wife and our children and moved to an apartment, a quite nice big apartment, several blocks away where I'm living with, uh, my children. And there are two cats have lived in the house that uh, I used to live in and they have, they were brought there as tiny kittens as three week old kittens 14 years ago. And they have been in that house for 14 years. And in the case, one of them goes outside occasionally. They're two girls or sisters. One of them goes outside occasionally. The other one quite literally had not been outside that house since before Barack Obama was elected president. Just think about it. Like this cat has lived only in the several couple thousand square feet of a house in Washington, D.C. And so the question was, and I have feelings for the cats. Hannah did not really have feelings for the cats. She, she tolerated them. She was okay with them. But I was the person who always, you know, changed the litter box, fed them, took care of them. I liked petting them. And so the question was, when I was moving, where do the cats go? Do the cats stay? Is it more important for the cats to stay in their geographical territory, the only world they've known? Or should they go to a place with a person who will be happy to take care of them, but in a totally new space, in a traumatic space? And so the, the answer is the cats are with me. I brought them here yesterday, but I don't know if I've done the right thing. Have I done the right thing? Um, I'll go first. You have so done the right thing. Um, even though cats will be cats and will pretend to be aloof, they do know who cares for them and who loves them. And they are adaptable to new environments. And in fact, I saw a little, I hear all the time as I listen to GabFest, the kitties sitting on your computer and getting in your way, which means they want to be with you, even if they cat-like pretend they don't want to. And we saw a cat tail on the Zoom earlier. And so I think you are, you, you are projecting trauma onto the cats that the cats are not actually feeling. I'm petting one right here. It's right here. However, I would also take the opportunity to say, as someone else did, John Dickerson can tell us who, if you really want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Do what I did and get a dog behind your husband's back for the good of the um, country. And now, uh, 11 years later, we have driven for the second time across the country to Wyoming um, with our dog with us because we love him too much to put him in the belly of a plane. And he's in a different place, um, so he won't interrupt this thing. But um, I've had a cat. I've had a dog. Um, and I'm sorry to say for cat people out there, no comparison. Get a dog, too. The cats will accommodate themselves. It was uh, That quote is attributed to... Um Truman, but I think it might be a bit of a splicing. But uh, anyway, it's usually Truman that's attributed to. Yes.
John, should I have moved the cats? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, come on, the cats don't. The, yeah, I mean, it seems to me to be the obvious choice for all concerned. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.